Heavenly Father, we give you glory this morning for who you are and what you do. And Lord, we confess that there are times where we don't give you the glory you deserve. So Lord, show us again through the power of your word, your righteousness, your perfection, how you have no equal amongst anyone. You are worthy of our praise and our honor and our glory, and we give it to you this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I don't know about you, I'm kind of a, a big fan of many things, but one of the things that I'm a fan of are buffets. Any, anybody else, right? A fan of buffets? Oh, yeah. And if you're not raising your hand, it's just out of politeness or like, uh, it's, it's the Midwestern in you, right? I mean, what's not to love, right? All the variety, all the endless options, the opportunity to try something new without too much of a risk, the chance to fill your plate with your favorite food and not feel bad about it because everybody else is doing it, right? And if they're not, then what are they there for? Now, I know uh, my 33-year-old self has a different appreciation of buffets than, say, my 16-year-old self did, for obvious reasons, but buffets are not something I frequent as much anymore. That's probably a good thing, but in my higher metabolism days, they were my favorite. You just couldn't go wrong. My, my family had this tradition growing up for birthdays. When it was your birthday, you got to pick the place that you would go, that we would all go out to eat. And, and growing up in a large family of seven, we didn't get to go out to eat all that much. And so that was kind of a special thing. So you didn't want to make a mistake. And so, like, why in your right mind would you pick a restaurant that focused on a singular genre uh, or type of food and you could have the whole thing, right? You could have it all. And that's what I did. I learned to appreciate the buffet. So I would choose things like Old Country Buffet or uh, Bonanza, for those of you that remember Bonanzas being around. Those are my favorite, my go-tos. And I can remember learning this important lesson about buffets very early on during my uh, first visit there as a 10-year-old. And the section that I happened to start off the buffet in was, was the area that had my favorite food, mashed potatoes. Look at that. I mean, that's incredible. I love mashed potatoes. That's about how much butter I put on it too, right? So what did 10-year-old Ben do when I saw this entire container of mashed potatoes? I did what any normal person would do. I didn't take one. I didn't take two. I didn't take three. I didn't take four. I took seven scoops of mashed potatoes. It covered the entire surface area of my plate. And then I got to the next section and went, wow, I like that too. What am I supposed to do with this? Again, I did what everybody else would do. I just piled the food on top of the mashed potatoes. So when I got back to the, to the table, I had this mashed potato casserole that had French fries and ribs and chicken and steak all on top of the mashed potatoes. So I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wow, that, uh, you don't really understand buffets, do you? No, I, I clearly did not, right? You're thinking, wow, you don't have any willpower or self-control or moderation, You're right, right? I still struggle with those things. So essentially what buffets do is they just showcase the deep depths of the issues I have in my sinful nature. That's all they're good for. Right? But the ending of this story, obviously it's expected. I learned that not all foods mix well together, clearly. And no one should ever eat that many mashed potatoes in one sitting in their life. It's not good. I was made to do it. Now sometimes it's nice to have options. It's sometimes nice to have options like in a buffet. Other times... Too many options make things more complicated, like at a buffet. We live in a world today where information, especially, or the ability to get information, is a lot like a buffet. There's lots of options, there's lots of sources, and so the questions you might have are, well, which ones are therefore the best? How do we know which sources we can trust, or which are the ones that are legitimate? How can you know that you're reading the right source or listening to the correct voice? And so today as we dig into God's word, we're going to come to the ninth chapter from the Gospel of Luke. And and what this chapter really serves is is a high point in the story 
of the life of Jesus. In fact, in each of the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they account this scene that we're going to be looking at as almost the climax or the turning point of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. And we see this really intentional and dramatic shift of events as Jesus becomes super focused and determined to complete the purpose for which he had been sent, which was, of course, to save people from their sins through his death and his resurrection. And so as we journey through this church here, we've seen this transition come about. And and as we transition out of this season of Epiphany into a season of Lent, which we'll start next week, we see chapter 9 kind of building up to this moment. If you're in chapter 9 in your Bibles, you'll see at the very beginning of the chapter that this is the part where Jesus has recently fed over 5,000 people. He miraculously multiplied five loaves of bread, two fish into a literal buffet that left no one hungry. We hear Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, declare him to be the promised Messiah that God has has sent to save his people. And then we hear Jesus speak of his upcoming death. So there's a lot to take in in this chapter. And so Jesus, knowing this, he invites three of his closest followers to come up with him on a mountain to pray. And what they will see there will remind them and reveal to them two things. The centrality of who Jesus is and the supremacy of who Jesus is. And so that's what we hope to see today for ourselves, that Jesus is central to the story of salvation and and that Jesus is supreme over anyone who has come before him and anyone who would come after him. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 28 and read through verse 36 as we hear this confirmation of Jesus' identity and this endorsement of who he is and what he's going to do. Verse 28 of Luke chapter 9 reads like this, about eight days After Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, They saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. Now you maybe have heard this story before or heard stories about this scene of, we call it the transfiguration of Jesus. There's a lot going on here. What does it all mean? What is is the significance behind what we're seeing and hearing? And that's what we want to look at for a little bit this morning together. One of the questions that each of the gospel writers seek to answer and address It has to do with the identity of who Jesus is, because Jesus is unlike anyone they've ever met. He's special. He's unique. He's more than just a good teacher. He's more than just this wise sage or this miracle worker. Who is he? It's the question that is asked by Jesus' disciples after he calms this raging storm on the Sea of Galilee. They look at each other and they say, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this guy? 
We hear dinner guests ask, ask this question when a woman who has a really poor reputation in the community, she comes in, interrupts the party, and, and anoints Jesus' feet with, with perfume and, and, and wipes his feet with her hair, and he forgives her her sins. And the guests are looking at each other in astonishment like, what is she doing? And then their attention turns to Jesus like, who is this who even forgives sins? Who does this guy think he is? It's a question that many people in the Gospels have. Who is this? It's a question that many people in the world have. Who is this? Even some of the people who knew Jesus pretty well and spent a lot of time around him had this same question. And this question that's going to be open-ended is going to come to be very clarified for several of Jesus' disciples. He invites three of them, James, John, and Peter, three of his closest disciples who share a lot of really special moments with Jesus up on this mountain for a prayer meeting. Now, I'm sure nothing about this invitation was abnormal. I guarantee they all had had shared experiences like this with Jesus before. They knew this was a part of the regular routine of his life. They'd probably been with him on several of these prayer getaways before. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary at first, And then things begin to change quite rapidly. Luke tells us in verse 29, as he, Jesus, was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Matthew says that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. And Mark describes his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could ever bleach them. That's quite the description. I'm sure that's what all of us look like when we pray, doesn't it? I mean, that's not a big deal, right? This is amazing. Now, I don't know if this has ever happened to you where someone you know very well or someone you think you know very well does something or says something that is just so out of character for them that it almost takes you by surprise. You're like, what was that? What was that? They do or say something, they react or respond in some way that's very different or unlike you know them to be or think you know them to be, and it just kind of reorients how you think about them or view them entirely. And you could probably think of some examples of how we view people like celebrities, like professional athletes or movie stars or entertainers, right? You have this view of them, this portrayal of what they're like or what you think they're like or how they portray themselves to be, and then it unfailingly happens where they do something or say something and it kind of just goes like, oh, man, I, that changes how I think about you. That's, that seems so out of character for what I thought you to be, Right? This happens all the time on a very practical level in marriage. You can ask my wife, Jenna Lee, am I the same person she thought she was marrying 10 years ago? Loaded question. You should ask her that, right? The answer is probably yes and probably no, right? It's yes in the sense that she did her homework, right? She, during our dating experience, she knows the foundation of who I am, my strengths and my weaknesses, what makes me tick, what I like, what I don't like. But it's also no in the sense that I am not the exact same person that I was 10 years ago. Some of my habits have changed. Some of my my preferences look a little different. Not to mention that she has now had plenty of opportunities to see that I'm not always at my best. I'm not always on my best behavior like I was when we were dating and I was trying to like impress her and think, wow, this guy makes no mistakes. He's just got the best attitude all the time. She finds out pretty quickly that, wow, some of the things that you say aren't very flattering. Some of the things that you do are just repulsive, right? You're not this dream guy I thought I was marrying. You're not Prince Charming. Surprise, right? 
Now, most of the time now when those things happen, we've been married long enough, when those things happen in our relationship now where one of us does or says something that is out of character, we almost kind of laugh and joke about it. So if there's a time where I don't put creamer in my coffee, you know, give me this look like, you're weird. Or if Jenna Lee takes, I did ask for permission to say this, if she takes less than 30 minutes to get ready for the day and I give her this look like, what, what are you doing out here so soon? Right? We both will look at each other and say like, I just got to keep you on your toes, keep you guessing, right? Out of character things. Now, for those of us who know anything about Jesus or who are well aware of the scope of who Jesus is, this is not something that is necessarily out of character, out of the ordinary for him. We know Jesus to be human. But we also know Jesus to be fully God. And so being fully God that is, means that this shining, bleach white, bright look was a part of who he is. It's totally a part of his character. It's well within his character as the divine son of God. I was reading a commentary this week that had this really interesting thought as we uh, glimpsed this incredible nature of who Jesus is in his full and perfect glory that that wasn't actually the biggest part of the miracle. The real miracle is the fact that Jesus looked like you and I every day, that he didn't look like this all the time when he very well could have. That what we were seeing and what the disciples were seeing of Jesus on the mountaintop was just a pause of an ongoing everyday miracle where Jesus did look like that at all the time. They couldn't have taken that. No one could have. Would have been a pretty spectacular and incredible sight to see. And I can imagine, like you maybe can, Peter, James, and John just kind of speechless watching this mouths open in amazement at how Jesus looked. And then add to what they were already taking in, two other people show up and appear out of nowhere with Jesus, Moses and Elijah, two prophets from the Old Testament who had been dead for hundreds of years, and here they are standing and talking with Jesus. Now, you might be wondering, well, what are these two other guys doing here? Most scholars would agree that the significance of Moses and Elijah appearing with Jesus in this moment speaks to what they were talking with him about. In his own words, Jesus said that he had come to fulfill the law, to fulfill God's plan of salvation that was given to us in the Old Testament. Everything that guys like Moses and Elijah were pointing ahead to, Jesus is the culmination of that. And that's what they were talking with Jesus about. They were discussing Jesus' upcoming departure. And the word that's used here in the Greek is actually the word for exodus. They were visiting with Jesus. They were talking with him about going to Jerusalem, going to complete his earthly mission to die for the sins of the world and to be raised to life three days later. And at this point, we see the disciples enter the scene again. We read that they're very sleepy, that maybe perhaps they had even fallen asleep during this prayer time with Jesus. We have to be honest and we have to confess, how many times has that happened to you in a prayer meeting or you're praying and you happen to just fall asleep, right? That never happens. And you're probably like, oh no, man, that would never happen. I would never do that. Fall asleep during a prayer? Who would do that, right? You'd have to be so normal to do that, right? I've done that before gasp. So you can imagine this. These guys are sleepy. They're, they're praying. Jesus is praying. The disciples are nodding off. One of them starts to snore, and then Jesus begins to glow. And, and Peter, after he's kind of trying to wake up and perhaps blink and rub his eyes, slap his face, pinch himself, like, am I seeing this right now? He, he, he's like, Jesus, this is awesome. Like, this is, this is a good thing. You know, do you want me to put up three shelters? I'll put up one for you. I'll put up one for Moses. I'll put up one for Elijah. This is good. And, and Luke humorously tells us that, that Peter simply had no idea 
what he was saying. He was so flabbergasted that, that he just kind of blurted something out, no filter. Didn't process what he was actually saying. And some of you know this, you can relate to this, you non-morning people, right? You wake up and you're trying to like reorient yourself to the world and, and you come downstairs all groggy and someone tries to have a conversation with you and you're like, oh, I can't think straight right now, give me my coffee, right? You can relate to this. Peter's waking up, it's kind of this awkward exchange. Notice that, this is the awkward part, Jesus, nobody responds to Peter. Just kind of leaves it open-ended, like one of those, one of those awkward questions, like, it's better to just not answer that. We'll just leave that alone, Right? So what is Peter asking, or better yet, what is wrong with his request that there's no response given? It's just kind of like, well, we're going to move on, right? In his ignorance, Peter saw what was going on. He saw that he was in the presence of something really good, really special. He's kind of in this who's who of the faith inner circle, this hall of fame when it comes to Bible characters. And in his request, Peter is really kind of missing out on the full implication of Jesus' identity, He's missing out on the grand scope of who Jesus really is and, and, he's, and he's not really considering what the trio has been talking about or what Jesus has been saying about going to Jerusalem. You know, when, when Jesus talked about his death earlier in chapter nine, the disciples are kind of like, whoa, that doesn't sound very glamorous. That doesn't sound very victorious. Why would you have to do that? Remember, the transfiguration shows us the centrality and the supremacy of Jesus. It shows us that he's on an entirely different level than anyone else, and he stands alone at the top. So in his request, what Peter's actually doing is he's diminishing Jesus' identity. He's diminishing Jesus' role as the Messiah because Jesus is not on the same level as Moses or Elijah. Jesus is not just like them. He's more than just a good teacher. He's more than just someone who pointed to God. He was God. He is God. He has no equal and in the moment that Peter is sputtering through this idea, his muttering kind of stops short because then what happens next, we read in verse 34, is that this cloud appears and surrounds them and they were terrified. And it should come as no surprise, right? I mean, nothing about this day had turned out to be very normal. And so even the clouds are looking ominous and abnormal. And the word that's used to describe this cloud is the same word that's used to describe the cloud that guided the people of Israel out of Egypt and through the wilderness. They were led by this pillar of cloud, this holy glory of God cloud that shone ahead of them and led them through the wilderness to Mount Sinai. It was the cloud that housed God's presence as he led them out of slavery. And it was this same cloud that came down on Mount Sinai as God met with Moses. And so we can empathize with the disciples in their fear because when God's presence, we read in Exodus, when God's presence, this cloud, comes down on Mount Sinai, it comes down in smoke and in fire, and then the voice of God booms like thunder and lightning. And in his instructions about God coming down on Mount Sinai, he warns them, don't, don't touch the mountain. Like, not a good idea. Don't touch the mountain. If even an animal were to approach the mountain and touch it, it would die due to the sheer holiness and glory of God that was on full display. And so as the disciples are surrounded by this cloud, it's no wonder they're a little bit frightened and spooked. So the disciples and Jesus were enveloped in this cloud and then God speaks to them from within the cloud and his voice affirms everything that Jesus had been trying to tell them and show them up to this point. It, it, it confirms everything. It confirms Jesus' identity. It answers this question of who is this? 
It's the same answer that this same voice gave earlier in Luke's gospel in chapter 3 where Jesus is baptized and the voice of God comes from heaven and says, this is my son whom I love. The voice of God not only confirms Jesus' identity, it also fully endorses him as the Messiah. God says, this is my son whom I have chosen, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And the cloud went away, and there was Jesus. No Moses, no Elijah, no one else, just Jesus. Now, I'm not sure exactly what the tone was going down the mountain. Like, how do you have an experience like that and not talk about it, right? Maybe the disciples were just kind of, maybe they were quiet. Maybe they're like, I don't even know what to say here. Or maybe they were bubbling over with questions for Jesus or, or talking with him about it. And all we know is that Jesus instructed them to kind of keep this to themselves after these things had all happened to him and after he'd been raised from the dead. So the place we end up this morning as we look at this text, which is familiar to some and, and maybe not as much to others, we kind of end up with this, well, that's cool. So what? That happened. So what? So this happened. So Jesus unleashed a brief glimpse of his glory. I'll bet that felt kind of good for him to do that. He was bottled up in this human body all the time. But that was nice for Jesus to shed his humanity for a moment. But so what? Why does this matter? First of all, we see that it matters to the disciples in, in the fact that it confirms for them what they, ha- what they know and then have also confessed. Remember, right before this transfiguration scene, Jesus asks his disciples, he goes, so who do people say that I am? And they're listing off all these options. Oh, some say you're Moses. Some say you're Elijah. Clearly not. Some say you're a good teacher. And then he says, okay, good. But what do you think? Who am I to you? And as we've grown accustomed to, Peter declares that Jesus is the Son of God, God's chosen Messiah. And we have to give Peter the benefit of the doubt. Undoubtedly, he knew that. But the reality of the transfiguration is that it confirms it for Peter. It assures Peter that this is true because there's no denying what he saw. And fast forward to the near the end of Peter's life, he writes in his second letter in chapter one, he says, for we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Yes, they were. Peter writes, he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And even John, one of the other three who were with Jesus on that day, wrote about in his opening chapter of his gospel account, John writes, the word being Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So for the disciples to see Jesus' glory revealed a lot of things to them. It put things together for them. They were assured that Jesus is who he says he is as the Son of God. Seeing Jesus in this light addressed any lingering doubt or unbelief that they might have had up to this point. And they heard God's voice affirming his Son as the one trustworthy source to listen to. And be guided by. 
So these things matter to them, but they matter to us today too, because in a world where we can be bombarded with a buffet of options and places to get information and, and, and sources to get answers to life's questions, there's really only one source that stands alone. The truth is that so many people, so many Christians can view things like faith or religion or spirituality as a a la carte buffet. And there are times when our mindset can kind of say things like, well, yeah, I'll take a little bit of this and I'll mix it with a little bit of that. But the plate that we end up with isn't always very appetizing or nutritious or good for us or what we thought it was going to be. And so when the tough circumstances of life come our way or when things rise up in our lives that create fear or anxiety or when we feel overwhelmed or when we're out of answers or we attempt to ask the experts or, or figure it out on our own, the transfiguration invites us to simply do one thing and that's look at Jesus. When we're tempted to see Jesus as less than he is, as just one of the options, then we're missing out entirely. Because the reality is that truth and hope and salvation are not buffet options. They've got one source. So what does the transfiguration deliver to you and me today? First of all, the transfiguration answers the question of Jesus' identity. It confirms who he is. He's the son of God sent to save you and me from sin and death. Secondly, the transfiguration delivers a confidence to you and a confidence to me that God loves you and thought that you were worth the while to send his son to accomplish everything he did on your behalf. Thirdly, the transfiguration encourages you that Jesus is greater and more powerful and more glorious than any challenge or problem that you may face. He's greater. And finally, the transfiguration redirects us to the main source, to the word, God's word incarnate, Jesus as the one we are to listen to and be guided by. There's a confidence and a hope and assurance in that. As the disciples were wrestling with all that they were seeing and hearing, God simply says, look to Jesus, listen to him, listen to his word, pay attention to what he does. It's the one that we're invited to listen to and look to as God holds us together and cares for us and sustains us. Writer of Hebrews writes this, and with this we'll close in this first chapter, verse three, first part of verse three. The Son, who's Jesus, radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for who you are and what you do in our lives. We're thankful for the power and the glory that you alone possess. It's on full display all around us. And Lord, there are times where it's difficult to see or difficult to know. There are times that we think we've got to handle things on our own, but we're invited to look to you. We're invited to see your glory revealed. Revealed in creation, revealed in other people, revealed in your word, and revealed in our lives. It's on full display. So help us to see and catch a glimpse of that. Be excited about that. Or help us to know and trust you as who you are, that who you are delivers everything we need to calm our fears and anxieties and delivers what we cannot deliver for ourselves. Lord, we're thankful again for the gift of your son, for sending him for us, and we're thankful for the promises that are ongoing and continue in our lives. Thank you for the gift of your word to us this morning. In your name I pray.
Amen. As we go, hear these words of the benediction and this blessing to you and to me. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And may the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.